Kale Brandon is an interdisciplinary artist making works which are embedded in specific sites, places and communities with a particular focus on people's relationships to nature, urban spaces, animals, architecture and survival. In 2021, Brooks commissioned Kale to deliver a public art programme for a new housing development at Rosenheath Gardens, Stoke Gifford in South Gloucestershire. Local residents joined Kale and herbalist Chris Rowe on a series of neighbourhood creative explorations and workshops. Participants mapped the edible and medicinal plants living in the surrounding areas and learned about their uses. These explorations and workshops influenced a new tree planting plan and the creation of a local food map brass plaque which was then installed in the local park. Residents and visitors can take rubbings from the plaque to help them explore the native food species in the area for generations to come. In this episode, we'll hear Kale talking about her practice and about the Rosenheath project. We'll also hear from Teresa Hazelwood, a landscape architect, who talked to us about the process of planning the green infrastructure on new developments and the practical challenges of delivering spaces that take into account residents' needs, planning and environmental laws, as well as the local ecology of a site. Also throughout the episode, we'll hear residents' voices recorded on-site at Rosenheath during the workshops. I'm very interested in nature. Um, I always have been. So as a sort of life-work thread, it sort of encompasses all of it, all of my kind of interests from a child onwards, really. I'm really interested how the city provides space or, well, actually the city's taken space from nature, right? Like um, from the forest, from the fields, from from the earth, um, and even from the skylines, you know, constantly imposing upon it in an urban context. But I'm interested in how Bristol in particular acts in some ways as a kind of a diversity of place of nature and non-human entities and human entities intermingled. Like early on in my practice when I was collaborating a lot with Heath Bunting and Kate Rich and Graham Hogg and these are all kind of cube people, I met them through the Cube Cinema, we were really exploring the city in a way that we were looking for wilderness experiences within the urban experience. Instead of imagining you had to go somewhere to, to get nature, to receive nature within the city. And, and not just external nature, your own nature through e- exploration. So it was a way of kind of feeling body contact with actual space, which for me was all about generating meaning and belonging and not just being a pedestrian, being um, insubordinate to our expected ways in which we move in the city as civilians. So I'm Kerry. Hello. Um, I work for a company called Bricks and we've been working with the developers on site. So part of the planning application um, asked for a condition for the site to work with the local community to develop a piece of public art. So an art being a kind of like a big formal word but actually what we wanted to do is create an engagement program so that the new residents could meet some of the older residents that have lived around here for ages and also learn a bit more about the site and what's important about the land that the houses are being built on and so we've been working with Kale um, to develop a series of community workshops 
and the end one will be an installation of a food map which will probably go somewhere around here which will show all the different foods and things that could be foraged in the area and used in the area um, and so our first workshop was looking at examining what was in the area so we can create this map and some of you were here for that and working out we're going to also plant some trees this one is now looking at more sort of medicinal side of things and looking at the way that herbs can be used or different uh, materials in the area can be used. So really celebrating what used to be on the site and what's around the site and will stay around the site for years to come. Heath Bunting and I started a map of Bristol in 2003 um, and we started mapping the city in terms of the um, edible plants growing in the city. And um, we, we also um, plotted plants, trees, bushes that were rooted in private spaces but were branching into public space. So it was also a dialogue around that. And also the map didn't have road names. So it was actually like, it actually looked like a leaf skeletal structure or something. And it was kind of mind boggling to kind of, um, kind of look at the map, but it made you kind of imagine the city um, in a different way. And this is way before Google Maps. And um, it was a way of repositioning kind of plant, plant persons, <laughs> I should, could say that, in a way that, that kind of changed the composition and made it more clear that, you know, they, they're here and here before and here after us, you know. So hello, yes, I'm Teresa Hazelwood. I'm a landscape architect. Um, I'm the landscape design director at Pegasus Group. So I look after the landscape design side of things. Um, so we regularly work on large scale house building developments and um, designing all the green infrastructure for them. Pegasus is a company specialised in master planning and landscape design. So yeah, things that can compromise diversity, variety of factors, cost, so cost for implementation, cost for ongoing maintenance, um, might depend who's maintaining it, some sites go to local authorities, some sites are looked after by private management companies, so some of the issues might come down to any sort of opinions or restrictions that local authorities may, may place on um, some of the designs. And there's things like the aesthetics. Um, I think developers can often want sort of neater, more well-presented sites, especially during obviously the sales period and having a nice, you know, manicured shop frontage versus obviously ecologically sites can look a little bit more unkempt or certainly at certain times of year. So the two don't always go, go hand in hand. And then there's, there can also be kind of a conflict over sort of like the use of the open spaces, especially on small sites where you're trying to balance potential requirements for play provision, for open sustainable open drainage system, for highways, for parking. So I think sometimes the diversity or having some, you know, decent sized open spaces given over to, to wildflower meadows and things can come quite a long way down that list. So it's not always as easy to, to marry them all together. Driving out to that site, the Stoke Gifford site, Obviously, the, one of the first things you see at the moment, which was going to change rapidly, is those huge mounds of earth that has all been dug up, ready to kind of flatten for houses to go on top of and concrete and all the different materials we use for housing developments. 
And the earth just looks so good. It just looks so rich and full of lovely minerals. And it, um, it makes me feel a bit sad, actually. And um, in terms of how the site, in, in relation to how people experience the nature there, I think it's, it's clearly going to be mostly built on and building practices the way they're currently looking don't really acknowledge the earth, that the materials that the houses and the roads go on top of, or acknowledge need, the need and necessity, the absolute necessity, for spaces that aren't just human facing. But in relation to when you meet the community, and how people want to make homes and neighborhoods and have spaces for children to feel safe and and nice walks and things like that and ng the commissioners obviously they've kind of recognized the importance of cultural practices within building communities and kind of instigating sites and also environmental needs of houses to be energy efficient and stuff, but I still feel as if plants are marginalised and the needs of non-human persons are marginalised within the city. And until that changes, I don't think we really get it. We don't really get what we need. Great. Nice. And um, Lily, because <coughs> obviously you're like, you, how old are you, 12? So yeah, what do you think? Like what would you hope to see? Like can you imagine, you know, when you're in your thirties, what kind of kind of environment would you like to be living in? I'd hope that there was more greenery around and like um, more different flowers that people could see that you wouldn't normally see on a daily basis maybe. Right, okay. Or and trees that maybe you could go and see and maybe people could talk about them, let people know what they are mm. and that people could be in the environment where like it's not full of houses and that it's somewhere almost to get away from mm. like um, every day mm. and it was just a bit more like calming. I think it definitely is a tool for activism. It's almost like a, quite a call to arms. Um, but in a very sort of gentle way. You know, it's sort of like, you know, calling it, you know, your plant neighbours is to say, you know, these plants are your neighbours as well. And to also reference, you know, may the many blossom and bloom, you know, may the many flower and flower, you know, like it's like not just us, you know, anymore. This is about everybody and everybody's not just humans when we're talking about a city. Brass rubbing, it has got this lovely printing ability to kind of distribute information. So it kind of speaks of early activist kind of printing presses in some ways, where information is being kind of printed and sent out. And I really like that, you know, because it has that ability to distribute inf information, but in this kind of really kind of physical analog way, you know. And yeah, I love the kind of open source aspect of it and how it references all those kind of approaches. Yeah, at the event on, on Saturday, I just loved how people delighted yeah. in the rubbing. And like, it seemed like kind of like an, you know, early forms of magic. Everybody, 
who did it was just like, oh, wow, you know, yeah. this is revealing itself upon the paper. And, uh, yeah, that just, that just brightens my day every time, you know, it's so nice. Okay, do you want to do a large one? You could take a whole one home. Oh, can I really? Yeah, of course, yeah. It's so beautiful, the whole. Oh, I really love holes. Yes, I like, nice. well, I like chills. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to have to hold them down because uh, I think it's really valuable to have workshops in the process of the making. And in some ways, some of these projects, it's a shame we just can't go on for a good year, you know? Like, actually, the length of time it really takes to build relationships for community projects is, is quite, it's, it's, it's often the main work, isn't it? Of, of community, social, public art projects. So having the workshops as a lead-in was really good uh, as a way of us um, getting to know the site. Obviously, I didn't know that site. I don't live there. And, you know, often it's sort of like, you know, not imposing yourself as an artist is really important, you know, like um, to get to know the site, to get to know the place and get to know people is pretty much one of the core of the works, you know. Yeah. So the first one was with herbalist Chris Rowe, and the second one as well with Chris was was with Chris Rowe. He's a um, Bristol-based herbalist who has um, his apothecary at um, Growalder, and so we we carried out the workshops together. And um, so the first one we and we went on this sort of walk. We went on a walk and we we sort of looked around at the different plants. Um, in the area, talking about the herbal and edible benefits of them. Um, and everybody was really interested, and it was really nice. It was blackberry season, so we ate some blackberries along the way. Um, uh, there was a, still a few cherry plums hanging around. That way as well, if you need any more. Um, Can you give <laughs> yeah, just a bit of it symbolically is nice to yeah, There's a few more blackberries over there, but they're quite high. There's loads just further on up the road on the right-hand side, I noticed. I mean, there are quite a lot, just yeah, like 10 yards down there as well. All right, let's go and get a small blackberries and then we'll go back. Oh, is that nice? Or is it a bit bitter? The next workshop was around about the time of the elderberries coming out. So we decided to focus on making an elder syrup, um, which is really, really good, like immune boosting, tonic syrup for this time of year. So that's another thing about, just going back to your previous question around kind of how people consume food through supermarkets or consume food through seasonal produce that's available. When you understand that different, that different foods come in different seasons, you can see how they relate to the needs, like, actual your own needs as well you know that 
that the elderberry comes out the time when people need to start boosting immune systems is amazing, isn't it? First of all, we need to find out how much we've got. So, so yeah, we of... need to strip the fruit off the berries. Yeah, so if we have... Um, which will be a messy business. <laughs> but, uh, so we can do that and then, then we'll work out how much sugar we need for that. Yeah. So I think probably what we're doing is... We started making this elder syrup and it was lovely and um, we had some really an interesting participant came along who was from a Romani background and had these amazing recipes that had been passed down through her family line on like really good immune boosting recipes, things you do when, you need, when you've got a cold, things, you know, like it was, so that was really fascinating. So then we started all sharing our different kind of experience of herbal and local remedies for things like that. Chris and I had started gathering like elder elderberry um, before because we knew that that site didn't have many trees. Actually, there are a few elder trees in that area, but they all seem to have been some of them seem to have been kind of cut down, which, according to traditional folklore, is not a good idea. Um, I just thought we would have a brief stand around this elder, um, because it's the local elder, and it's one of the only elder trees in the area. Um, it must have been cut down, and it must have been quite a big tree, because I can see that there's a stump down there. And it's managed to kind of, it's growing its shoots out again and returning. Um, so yeah, I just thought it'd be nice to sort of have a look at this one and say hello to it. Um, so does an elder normally, is it just like a normal tree with one tree trunk that grows up? Because obviously this one's gone. Yeah, so this one's been, this one would have been cut down and it's returning right. after being cut. Yeah. In folklore, they're really related to magic. <laughs> Elder ones, and mm -hmm. it said that the um, one of the triple, what's the crone aspect of the triple-headed goddess lives within the elder, and um, and um, apparently it's really bad luck if you use elder selfishly, um, and uh, the elder mother can um, can then kind of use her magic powers to kind of tell you off about it. I love the kind of how both the brass plate and the cyanotype and the, and the elderberry making are all about transforming kind of materials or like experiencing the kind of magic of, you know, of, of making with nature. When I first went to the Rosenheath site, the landscapers and um, planting commissioners, quite often these places use really generic plants um, that are kind of, they don't, yeah, loads of them are just really, the intention is, oh, it's hardy, it'll last, it won't shed too many leaves, it won't be inconvenient, it won't, it won't spread out, it won't impinge, it won't, you know, like basically quite a lot of the planting choices are about that. Oh, it won't fruit, so there won't be mess on the floor, etc., etc. So, 
I thought, considering we were doing like an edible food map, that we needed to kind of acknowledge that that these that to have kind of plants that do fruit or not produce berries, create shade, grow, multiply, provide food for non-humans as well, was a good thing. And that um, actually, um, we need to see more of that. What do I hope for green spaces within high-intensity housing areas? Well, I guess it's for them to become really well-used and valued open spaces for the new communities um, and for those spaces themselves to kind of help encourage that sense of community, bring people together, yeah, that they become valued and, and well-cared for and that they're either extensions of people's own gardens or for them that maybe don't have their own open spaces that they very much feel that they are their spaces that they can, they can go and use. You do see some of these community initiatives where they start to turn some of these spaces into edible landscapes or start to put their own raised beds in and take that sense of ownership and really start interacting with the space and and yeah, almost using the initial designs as a starting point, but you know, they grow it grow into it and make it their own, I think is yeah, would be something that's really nice to see and probably doesn't happen happen enough. I saw people kind of meeting and connecting and and forging new relationships through through the Rosenheath um, project, and that was really good. What you've produced for this site sounds personally really interesting. You know, I have an allotment. I'm interested in you know food production and, and, and engaging with edible landscapes and things. And I can't help but think on some of our, our much bigger developments. You know, where we've got several hundred houses, we've got a huge amount of public open space, and we're designing things like community orchards into those spaces, and we've got allotments and all that sort of stuff. Actually, kind of having this kind of interpretation strategy almost, you know, that there is almost like this foraging route around some of the sites would be really quite a nice layer to kind of add in to, to the developments. I suppose with, with making the um, edible map of Rosenheath area, what was lovely was about meeting the people who came and who were related to that place and or who were newly arrived to that area. And I suppose one thing is to start those conversations and to start kind of inviting people to make more responses and works about it. Yeah, you know, arts practice is a great space for it. And just need to plant more trees. Yeah. <laughs> Lately, I've been listening to this song by Moondog. And um, I really like it because it's, the song's called Enough About Human Rights. And obviously, I, totally believe human rights are really important. Um, however, he goes through lots of different um, non-human entities and the song ends with what about plant rights? What about plant rights? What about plant Thanks for listening. We're Bricks, a social enterprise with the mission to support creative communities in Bristol, helping them to thrive. We work with communities, developers and local artists to produce programmes that support both local voices and Bristol's creative economy. 
In 2021, we delivered public art projects across a range of developments from hotels to new housing neighbourhoods, schools and listed community buildings. If you'd like to get in touch, learn more about Brick's public art producing or find out more about the artwork discussed in this podcast, please visit bricksbristol.org and follow us for updates on all the usual social channels. To be the first to hear when we release new podcast episodes, be sure to subscribe to our feed. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to leave us a review. This podcast was produced by Rowan Bishop. The Rosneath Gardens Public Art Project was commissioned by Clarion Housing Group with support from Engie. Thanks also to South Gloucestershire Council.